Well, it is good to be here this morning. It's great to have my guys back, and Matt in particular. It's awesome. And, uh, and to see his fire. He got me so fired up like I'm distracted. So um, <laughs> that's hard to get me distracted, truthfully. But it's great to open God's Word again with you guys this morning as we continue today with our study of this book of Acts that we've been doing all year. And we've been doing it in pursuit of an idea that we're developing, which is that life for the believer in Jesus is mission. And today, as we return to the study, we come to Acts chapter 20, which you already know because you've been doing your personal worship, right? And you've read it and you've studied it. And you realize that when we come to Acts chapter 20, we find this apostle Paul whose journeys we have been tracking along with and who we also know spent three straight years, and this is important, investing all of his time, all of his passion, all of his energy, all of his considerable talents into founding and then growing and developing the church in the city of Ephesus, but who, as we've already seen as well, has wrapped that up. He's done. And he left there, and he went up to Corinth to spend the winter. And now, as we pick up our study in this chapter, what do we find him doing? We find him traveling from Corinth to Jerusalem by way of a boat that seems determined to pull into absolutely every port city between Corinth and Jerusalem. And so this morning, as we pick up the study in verse 17 of chapter 20, we find him in the city of Miletus, which is a really significant city to Paul for one reason. It's 30 miles from Ephesus. It's only 30 miles away from that precious church, from those precious people. And Paul, sensing rightly, as it turns out, that this is his last opportunity, this side of heaven, to send a personal message to that church, to those people, calls for the elders of that city who walked 30 miles to come and to meet with him. And what we come to today really is Paul's last message, his final will and testament, if you will, to that particular church, but not just to that particular church because Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is there. He's at the meeting and he's got his notepad and he's got his pen and he's taking copious and very meticulous notes. And then under the inspiration of God's Spirit, I want you to hear that. Under God's guidance, he records this for who? For Ephesus? No. For you, for me, for every Christian and for every church that will ever be between now and the return of Christ. It's not just his message to them is my point. It's his message to me this morning and it's his message to you this morning. And I hope, I hope that you hear it because here's the message contextualized to our conversation. It is that this mission that you and I are called to give the whole of our lives to, to lay down our lives for, to make sacrifices in favor of, to deny ourselves that we might do it, to die to ourselves that we might live to it. Okay, this mission of taking the gospel mercies of Jesus, real and practical help to people with real and practical needs here and around the globe and in places like Haiti that Matt just came back from, and his gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, which, by the way, means that it cannot be found in anything or anyone else. And does that not kind of up the ante a bit? All right, this mission is fulfilled by the Holy Spirit. We've seen that all the way through the book. It is the work of God's Spirit. But here's the privilege. Through people like me and you, people who, as we're going to see today, are faithfully committed, and that is a majorly key phrase, to at least two things. One, living lives of transparency, and two, to God's truth 
Meaning to God's word, to what we call the Bible, and not parts of it, not some of it, to the whole of it. People who stand beneath it, not above it. This mission that we're on is is fulfilled by the Spirit through people who are faithfully committed to transparency and truth. We pick up our study today in Acts 20, beginning in verse 17, where we read this. Now, from Miletus, that's the port city he's just pulled into on his way to Jerusalem, Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of that church to walk the 30 miles necessary to come to see him. And when they came to see him, he said to them, hey, guys, here's my final message for you. But guess what? Not just for you, because Luke's going to take notes and then he's going to record it in the book of Acts. So it's going to be my final message in some sense for every Christian and every church. And I want you to notice what he leads with. He says, you yourselves know what? How I swept into town as a great preacher and teacher and conference speaker, but otherwise lived a pretty secluded life. And so you never really got to see the real me. Exactly the opposite. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia until the day that my feet left Asia, serving not myself, the Lord, with what? Because in that culture, this was a negative, not a positive. Theirs was a culture that valued power. Theirs was a culture that valued strength. Theirs was a culture that did not value weakness. He says, look, you guys saw how I lived. I didn't live separate from you. I lived with you. You saw it all in me and how I served the Lord with not just a little bit, not just some, not, you know, hey, you know what? A little bit above average on this. No, no, no. With all humility. When you look at that Greek word in other literature, you realize that it is almost, without exception, used negatively, except in the New Testament, which speaks to me and to you, in which case it's called a virtue. You know that I lived among you, he says, serving the Lord with all humility, but not only that, with tears. Now, keep in mind that Paul was an adult white male. How many adult white men do you know who cry publicly and frequently other than him? (laughs) He does it all the time. But other than him, Paul did it. So I think Matt's on to something. I think maybe he's ahead, not behind. But not only that, he says, and with trials. And oh, what trials this man faced. What trials this man faced. They witnessed him face these trials publicly and privately. He let them into his life, into his anxieties, no doubt into his fears, into his struggle of faith. He says, and even with trials, you know, the ones that happened to me through the plots of the Jews who conspired against Paul in that city and threatened not just his reputation and not just his safety, but even his very life. And so then in his final statement to those people and to us, for Luke's given it to us, it's to us. What does he lead with? He leads with his own example of a life of transparency. Why? Because this mission that we're called to give our lives to, this mission is fulfilled by the Holy Spirit, but but through people who are faithfully committed to, first of all, living lives of transparency, even in a culture like his, 
And like ours, in which transparency is not exactly fostered and promoted and valued. In fact, as I thought about it this week, I thought, good grief, we might value it even less than they did. And that's saying something. And I'll say why. Because we have things, for example, like social media. And I am not going to go on a rant about social media. I do not think that it's evil. I'm on Twitter, barely, but I am on it. But I want you to think about it with me for a minute because a lot of us spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of creative energy not just having fun on things like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Vine and all of these things, but really either knowingly or unknowingly, wittingly or unwittingly, consciously or unconsciously managing our image before the world, presenting ourselves to the world, well, in the way that we would really like to be seen. And we do it And it's insidious because we have given way to the temptation, and it is a strong and a constant temptation to measure our self-worth and value, not by who we are in Jesus, that's what we're supposed to do, but rather by how many friends we have or how many likes we get or how many followers that we have in Twitter, which is exactly why, incidentally, we follow those things. Like we know how many followers we have and how many likes we get and how many friends we have and not just how many we have. And this is really telling. How many our friends have and maybe even how many of our enemies, you know, how many do they have and why do we even care about these things? And incidentally, pastors do it too. It's like you get on Twitter, you wait a little while, you gain some followers and one day you think, I wonder how many followers that guy has. And you, and you look, right? And you either feel better about yourself or worse. What do you measure your value by? And let me ask you something. Does that lend itself toward transparency? Does it teach you to be a transparent person? Let me ask it this way. When you go on vacation, let's just assume, for example, that your vacation was a train wreck. You fought with your husband or with your wife. Your kids bickered the whole time. Somebody threw up in the car. The hotel was not what it was supposed to be. It rained seven out of eight days. Like, it's the world's worst vacation. Okay, what pictures did you put on Facebook? (laughs) Be honest. It's the one sunset out of eight days, right? It's the, it's the smiley and my kid is, there's no Vine video of you arguing with your husband. And I don't really want to watch that on Vine anyway. So I'm not suggesting you put it there. What I'm suggesting is that we live in a day and in an age when even our technology is teaching us to not be transparent to manage an image that is to be found only in Jesus. And by the way, that's what the gospel teaches us, to find your identity, your value, and your worth in Christ. And that frees you then to do what Paul is telling you to do, which is to live a life of transparency. And here's why. So that through your weakness, the people in your family, the people in your office, the people in your school, your circle of friends, whatever, the people in your little world that God has uniquely brought you into contact with, through your weakness, they can begin to see glimpses of the strength of Christ. Through your deficiencies, His sufficiencies. Through your inadequacies, His adequacies. Through your foolishness, His wisdom. Through your brokenness, His healing. Through your great sin, His even greater grace. Paul says, you yourselves know how I lived among you, and nobody's arguing with him. Like, you know, Luke doesn't say, and then they all said, no, not really. You didn't actually 
They're all nodding along going, yep, you're right. He's teaching us from his example. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia until the day that my feet left Asia, serving who? Myself and my image? No, Christ and his image at the expense of Paul's image, frankly. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials and with all of the vulnerabilities that went along with them as a result of what happened to me, he says, through the plot of the Jews who conspired against me in your city. And then he says, and you also are witnesses of what? Of how I did not shrink back. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, publicly and privately, testifying to what? Both Jews and Greeks, friends and enemies, believers and unbelievers as well. To everyone is the point of repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So now what is he talking about? He's talking about the truth. And why is he talking about the truth? Because this mission that we're to give the whole of our lives to. It's worthy, and we'll get to that. Okay, look, it's accomplished by the Spirit through people who are faithfully committed, first of all, to transparency, but then also to truth, meaning to God's truth, to God's Word, to this book called the Bible, and not to parts of it, but to whole of it. And I will tell you that teaching it, preaching it, talking about it, sharing it, takes a faithful commitment to it, and here's why, because everyone everywhere, including all of us, are offended by at least some part of it. We just are. And I would ask you today, what part of it do you shrink back from? What part of it offends you? You know, we talked about it last week, and I'm sure you were hoping that that was it, right? Like, we talked about that, and now we've moved on. But what do you not want to hear a sermon on? What is it? What do you look at and say, you know what, that is crazy, and it's a little too crazy for me? That's a little too inhibiting. That's a little too invasive. That's a little too, I don't know, fill in the blank. Whatever it is that keeps you from, in faith, embracing it and living it. Do you stand above it and judge it and pick and choose and decide which parts you want? Or do you stand beneath it and say, Lord, you know, I I don't know that I really comprehend all of this. And honestly, it's pretty scary to me. And it's sort of an unpopular message. And I realize that this is not politically correct. And But in the fear of the Lord... I will obey. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't mean you're afraid of Him. It means you recognize who He is and who you are, and in awe and humility, you submit to His Word and find freedom in life. That's the irony. The thing that looks like it will bind you frees you. The thing that you look at and go, man, that would kill me, brings you life. But it takes a faithful commitment, and Paul now is going to explain just how faithful the commitment is, because he then turns to that topic in verse 22, and he says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem being constrained, or really being driven to do so by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, well, that the same Holy Spirit who is driving me to go there in the first place also testifies to me in every port city that we pull into as we're traveling by boat that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But what Paul's saying is, I will go nonetheless, and here is why I will go nonetheless, because I do not account my what? Bank account, my schedule, 
My relationships, my reputation, my plans, dreams, goals, agenda, career, passions. What? Something far more precious than those things. Something we would gladly give away all of that to keep. He says, look, I'm going to go anyway because I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. And the word course there refers literally to a race course. It's like he's on a track and he's got to run through the tape. He says, that's what matters. If only I can finish this race is the idea and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. And I want, to, I want you to hear this ministry. This is so cool. Are you ready? This is great. Here's his ministry. Here's his mission. It is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I point that out to you because that's my mission and that's your mission. And I say that because I think a lot of us want to go, yes, and he's the Apostle Paul, and that's his mission, not mine. <laughs> hey, you know what, Tom? You're a pastor. That's your mission, bud. That is not for me. You know what my job is? You know what Matt's job is? The pastors here serve to equip you to do that mission. If you are a follower of Christ, you are His witness. What are you then to witness to with your lips and with your life, with your words and with your deeds? Well, here it is. We exist to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And here again, Paul doesn't just teach us that principially. You know, he doesn't drive by and drop the truth bomb out the window at us, you know, and then just drive away. He bears this forth in his life. How does Paul's life end in this world? I guess if you ask the world the question of that, okay, the answer would be with him losing his head in Rome and a beheading in Rome. But I think if you ask Paul how his life ended, I think if you ask Christ how his life ended, I think if you ask any believer who has the imagination of faith how Paul's life ended, it ended in eternal glory in heaven, and it's that eternal glory in heaven that allows him to face the beheading in faith. And it seems to me from reading his writings that he saw both coming. He says this, for example, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, very famous, but now listen to the language. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have fought it. I'm done. He's at the end. That's the point. He's in a prison in Rome. Death is imminent. I have fought the good fight. It's over. I have finished the same word that we're using here today, same word that he uses with us and the Ephesian elders. I, I've finished the race now, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there was laid up for me a beheading here in Rome. There is, you know. But it's not what he focuses on. It's not how he lives. It's not actually what he cares about. His life is not precious to him. It's the gospel that matters. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That's what they would give to the victors in the Olympic Games in their day, a laurel wreath. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous what? Judge will give to him when? He will award it to me on that day. Now, what day is that? It's the day of His return. It's the day in which He judges the living and the dead. 
It is, in fact, the most important day in history. And it needs, in fact, to be the most important day in my life and yours, as it was in his. Look, Paul's not living for today or even for the tomorrow that he's constructed in his mind and heart and imagination and is working to make happen for himself. He's living for the last day. And he's not disappointed by the fact that he's going to be beheaded or all of the conflict or all of the issues or all of the problems that he experiences in this life. Why? Because he's not looking for the reward of God in this life. He's looking for God's reward on the day that God has said he will bring it. On the last day. So many of us get so discouraged and we go, Lord, we deserve better than this. When we don't, actually. And secondly, though God blesses us abundantly in this life. When is the day of reward? It's the last day. It's the judgment day. It's the day of His return. And therefore, what day ought we to live for? Would that be today? Okay, how about tomorrow? I'll give you the next day, assuming it comes. Is that it? Next week? There is a day that we're to live for. Paul, who lives for that day, says, let me tell you what's going to happen on that day. Give you a sneak peek. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me, but not just him, as we'll see, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and, I love this, not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Who are the people that are really going to love the appearing of Jesus on the day that He returns? Because I'm going to go with the people who lived for that day, who longed for that day, who went through the trials and the hardships and the whatever it took to get the gospel out through their families and their businesses and their community and into this world, okay, and looked to that day all the while as that will be the day of my vindication, of my deliverance, and of my reward. It's the day to live for. You know, since our theme is life is mission this year, one of the things that I've started to do recently is I'm, I've started to gather up books on great missionaries and begin to read them. It's very inspiring. It's really amazing. It's really humbling. I'd encourage you to do it. When we were in North Carolina on vacation, I read a book called 30 Years Among the South Seas Cannibals, which I'm not going to lie, is a bit of a tongue twister. So it's hard to say. 30 Years Among the South Seas Cannibals, but it's the autobiography of a guy named John Patton. And John Patton was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in the mid-19th century, who as a young man had a really thriving inner city mission. God's hand of blessing was on this man in that city and in his, in his homeland where he was perfectly safe and surrounded by family and friends. And as a newly married guy with a pregnant wife, John Patton left that because he kept, felt called to take the gospel to the savage, cannibalistic, tribes of what were then called the New Hebrides Islands. It's an archipelago. It's a collection of islands, 82 of them, that today we call Vanuatu. It's in the South Pacific. And there he went. Now, he went to the island originally called Tana. That was his plan. 
The last two missionaries, who were the only two missionaries ever to be sent to Tana, a missionary couple, sort of like he and his wife, were in fact murdered and eaten by the cannibals on that island. So I just want to pause here for a second and say, okay, all of a sudden his wife is your little girl. How are you feeling right about now? You loving that? You thinking that's a great idea? Let's step away from the feelings for a minute. Could you in faith support that? I think that is a very important question for us as parents because I think therein lies a lot of the answer as to whether our children are going to become missionaries or not. What if he was your son? You good with it? Maybe not emotionally, but are you good with it? Okay, you know what the answer to the question is? It depends on what day you're living for. It depends on what day most matters. It depends on the value that you place on the mission. So anyway, he takes his pregnant wife and they go to this island of Tana and they build their house by the sea, which was a mistake, but he didn't know that. I mean, you know, they didn't have everybody training everyone and, you know, malaria. What, you know, what's that? And why not build it by the sea? It's kind of nice there. All the natives built up in the hills. Three months after they get there, his wife gives birth to a little boy. Three weeks later, she dies, probably of malaria. Two and a half weeks after that, the boy dies and leaves John Patton there by himself. And with his own hands, he digs their graves and buries their bodies and stays. And stays. And then you read the account of his stay. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, the pressure that this guy was under, the threat constantly that this guy was under, the way his life was threatened over and over again, all the people who wanted to kill, and not just kill, but, you know, I mean, eat him, seriously, is overwhelming. And the way that God miraculously delivered him again and again and again, but he didn't deliver all the missionaries because he tells the account of, well, then there was this missionary couple and they got killed and eaten. It's unreal. I think perhaps my favorite quote in the whole book came at the beginning of the book. It's before he leaves with his pregnant wife to go to Tana. And he's going around, again, successful inner city mission, God's blessing the whole deal. Now he's going to go live with the cannibals, and they just ate the last two, so is this really a good idea? He's going around trying to raise support, and people are going, hey, man, you know, like, have you thought this through? He writes this, he says, amongst many who sought to deter me from going was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument was always, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Pretty good chance, actually. Not a bad argument, or is it? Well, I guess it depends on what day you're living for. So listen to what Patton says. He says, at last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, sir, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And then he said this, this is the conviction that drove him there and kept him there. 
He says, and in the great day. Would that be the day his wife died or no? Oh, no, it's another day, right? Okay, okay. How about when he buried his son? Is that the great? That's not the great day, is it? Stress upon stress, threat upon threat. Were those the great days? Is that what he was living for? Because if it was comfort, he about to get out of there. He says, I confess to you, sir, that if I can but live and die, serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And you say, well, you know, Tom, what kind of people do stuff like that? Because, Tom, I'm having a trouble, like, talking to my neighbor, and I've known him for 23 years, about Jesus. And I'm pretty sure he's not going to eat me. He just not might not want to talk to me again for a while. Like, I'm having trouble talking to the mom who's the mom of one of the kids on my son's baseball team. You know, and the truth is I've really gotten to know her well because our boys have been on the same baseball team for the last four years, and we have sweated it out hundreds of times together, and her whole life's falling apart, and I know that she needs Christ, and I just need the boldness to... Or maybe it's the person in your office and you've worked together with them for, I don't know, how many years? And you know they need Jesus and and you felt the Spirit go, hey, um, this would be the chance. You know, just, okay, all right, here's another one. What kind of people do stuff like this? Like John Patton or for that matter, talk to their neighbors or friends or... People who live not for today. People whose identity is found in Christ and not in what others think of them. People who live a transparent life and draw a lot of the sting by letting them through into your life and through your weaknesses see the strength of Christ. Through your sin is great grace. Humble, self-effacing people who are faithfully committed to this mission, who realize, you know what, this mission is more valuable than my dollars, though I deny it all the time. It's more valuable than my time. It's more valuable than my passions, than my goals, my agendas, my this, that, or the other thing. It's more valuable than than the discomfort of doing something like that. It's, it's more valuable than life. It depends on what day you're living for. Paul's calling us to live for the final day and to put it all out there. So again, he says in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my race and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, which is our ministry as well. And then he says to these Ephesian elders whom he loves, he says, look, now behold, it means look, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. And he drops a bunch of instructions on them. And then after those many instructions, Luke, who's sitting there taking notes, tells us what happens. In verse 36, he says, And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all of these adult white men who don't come by that naturally. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that he would not see, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And as we'll see as we continue our study next week, he gets on the ship 
And on and on the journey goes toward Jerusalem and then ultimately to Rome where he authenticates this message by writing it in some sense with his own blood. Guys, the mission that we're on, that we've been given, we are plan A, B, C, D, E, F, and G of God. There's no other idea. There's no other alternative. He's come and He's given us the deposit of His gospel and said, now go. And as you go, I will go with you. I think a lot of us look around and we're wondering, where is Jesus on our life? He's off on His journey and you're off on yours. (laughs) You know, it's like, can I join up with Him? Now I'm experiencing Him in a way that, wow, I didn't ever know before. The mission is fulfilled by the Spirit through people who are faithfully committed to living for the last day, faithfully committed to living lives of transparency, caring not what the world thinks, caring only what Christ thinks, and finding our identity in Him and to truth, meaning not some of it, not parts of it, but the whole of it. So I want to close today with three questions. Number one, who in your world needs for you to open up your true life to them? So that through your weakness that you're transparent about, they can begin to see the strength of Jesus. And through your deficiencies, His sufficiencies. Inadequacies, adequacies. Foolishness, wisdom, brokenness, healing. Great sin, even greater grace, even, by the way, if it means that you will feel embarrassed. Because the bottom line is that, look, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about your image or my image or how either one of us appear to the world. It's about Jesus and His image and His ability to make an appearance in this world through you. So who do you need to be transparent with? Secondly, what part of God's Word do you shrink back from, take offense to, find too scary, too restrictive, unwilling to live and unwilling to speak. And what are you going to do about that? Which leads to the last question, which is simply, what day are you living for? Today, tomorrow, the next day? Or the great day? The one that in the end really matters. For those who love His appearing, because they've lived for that day. John Patton continued to work on Tana. He stayed there for six years, and then he took like furlough, and he went and raised all kinds of money for a ship for this archipelago, this collection of islands, to help, you know, take care of the different missionaries on these. And then he got remarried and took his new wife to a whole new island, an island called Aniwa, and they raised their family there. Lived there for 24 years, facing so many of these same kind of hardships, you know, so many of these same threatenings of death. But God in His glory prospered their work until it got to the point where that whole island worshipped Jesus. That doesn't happen if you live for today. And I wonder sometimes as we look at our lives, what would God give us if, like Paul if like Patton, if like countless, nameless, millions of other believers throughout history, we decided this isn't the right day to live for. And in big and little ways that are all big in the eyes of God, what island, we'll just put that in quotes, would He give to you 
What do you give to us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning uh, that there is another world, (laughs) that there is another day, that there is a greater place and a greater cause to live for than this world and the cause of ourselves. Father, we pray that we might walk away today so impressed with your greatness and glory that we recognize, Lord, that your mission is more valuable to us even than our lives. And stop putting all the petty little things that are even less valuable than our lives ahead of it. Lord, may we offer to you ourselves, may we offer to you, as scary as this is, our kids. May we offer them to you. And I pray that you give us island after metaphorical island for your glory. And I ask, Lord, also that we might be a group of people who on the last day really love your appearing. For that is the day of our vindication and of our great reward. That's the day we live for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.